Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you so much for coming and, and worshiping with us. Um, tonight, we're going to be looking not at Luke, which you would expect that we would be looking at Luke because we read through Luke. We're going to actually be looking at Matthew chapter 2. And I did that because I know that a lot of people who come on Christmas Eve are skeptical of organized religion. And this is just me expressing to y'all that we are not organized. So um, <laughs> Matthew, and, and I also, by the way, know that... Um, the, the sand is ticking or pouring through the hourglass, and, and there's a lot of kids in the room, and we're going to be quick tonight. Just, I'm working on everyone's behalf. Um, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, let me read it all for you, and then, and then we're just going to look at three reactions to the Christ child. That's going to be it. So Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd for my people. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we're just going to look at three reactions to the Christ, to Jesus, who was supposedly the king of the Jews. We'll, we'll start with King Herod. Okay, King Herod, interesting guy. On his very best day, he was, he was really insecure. On, on his worst day, he was like an insecure psychopath. He, he was appointed to be the king over Judah and Israel under the authority of the Roman emperor. And, and in some ways, he had a really positive contribution. He was known as a great builder. So he, he built all these things. He rebuilt the temple of Jerusalem. He built a bunch of pagan temples. He, he built theaters and palaces. He built this place called Masada in Israel. And if you've ever gone to Israel, or if you ever go to Israel, go to Masada. It's, it's unbelievable. And he built that place. And so hats off to King Herod. Now, here's what I want to point out. Tell me if you think this is true. Insecure people often use their productivity to compensate for their own insecurity. Have you noticed that? Like there are some people who are highly motivated by their insecurity, and so they, they end up doing a lot in the world, but it's all rooted in insecurity. Well, that, that's true of Herod. It just didn't work because his productivity didn't remedy his insecurity at all. In fact, he ended up killing his wife and several of his sons and a whole bunch of other relatives because he was so concerned with, with someone impeding his own sovereignty. So like someone was going to take over his throne, someone was going to take control from him and he wouldn't have it. And so he killed the people 
who he was very closest to. Verse 3 says that Herod was troubled when he heard about Jesus being born, and it says all of Jerusalem was with him. Now, let me ask this question. Why do you suppose that a king would be troubled at the birth of a child? I mean, what's the big deal? Why would King Herod, who's, who's the sovereign over Israel, why would he be troubled by the birth of Jesus? Does anyone here from Great Britain, raise your hands real quick. Okay, we're in trouble. No, nobody from Great Britain. I think the Brits understand this principle that I'm about to lay on we who are largely Americans. And so here's, let me, let me get it to you this way. How many of you remember Queen Elizabeth? God rest her soul. Died this last year. Yeah, so y'all, y'all aren't British, but you, you follow the royal family. Okay, so I, I get what I'm dealing with here. Okay, so Queen Elizabeth, anybody remember who she was married to? Not really, it sounds like. Um, guy named Philip, okay? Now, was he ever called King Philip? No, he was never, he was called Prince Philip, right? He died before Queen Elizabeth, so if you're young, maybe you don't remember him. But, but Prince Philip was married to Queen Elizabeth, okay? He was never called the king, okay? Keep that in mind. Now, when Queen Elizabeth passed away, Prince Charles, who was his son, her son, became King Charles. Now, anybody know who King Charles is married to? Camilla, y'all are reading People Magazine. I like that. That's great. So yeah, Camilla. Okay, now, interestingly, does anybody know Camilla's new title? Queen Consort. Yes. I mean, someone's like really proud of that. That's fun. Um, Queen Consort. I had to look that up. Consort, like, it's the first time I've ever heard that word, literally. And, and so I look it up. Here's the deal. If, if you don't know what a queen consort is, it's like a queen except with no teeth, no fangs, no authority. Like it, it's, it's a paper queen. Like, like she can't do anything. She, she can't tell anyone to do anything because she's not really the queen. She's just like a paper queen. She's the queen consort, okay? That doesn't mean she's a bad person. I'm, I'm sure she's a great person. I'm sure she'll do great things, but it won't be because she is a sovereign because she's not. If she was a sovereign, she'd be Queen Camilla. She's Queen Consort Camilla. And that basically means she's just a regular person. Regular person who's in People Magazine a lot. Okay? So here's the deal. Here's my point on this, okay? Why aren't any of these spouses ever called king or queen? Why? The, The Brits understood this, okay? Here's what the Brits would tell you. There's only room for one sovereign. If there's a queen, there can't be a king. Because there can't be two sovereigns. If, if, if there's a king, there can't be a queen because you can't have two sovereigns. And th- that's the whole point. If you think you're a sovereign, and this is my point tonight for you, if you think you're a sovereign, if you think you're in control, if you think you have authority over your own life, any other king is an enemy. Do you get that? That's, that's very important. If you think you're in control, Jesus threatens you. Now, this isn't me as a Christian talking to you and presuming that you're not a Christian. This is me as a Christian talk, and I love that. I do. I'm for it, for you. <laughs> Jesus threatens me. He does. Every time I sin, what I'm basically saying is I'm the sovereign here. I, I, I'm trying to impede on Jesus' sovereignty on his goodness. I'm I'm trying to take back 
something that isn't mine? Could you be a person who so fervently wants to maintain control of your life that you've seen Jesus, a truly benevolent and sovereign king as your enemy? Could, could he threaten you? I get that you're not Herod. You, you don't have the power or you're not crazy to be just like Herod. But we have things to learn from Herod. That's one reaction to the Christ child. The next response to Jesus comes from the religious leaders, the, the priests, the scribes, the chief priests. And here's the deal with those guys. They know a lot about the Bible. And in fact, when Herod goes to them and says, where is the child supposed to be born? They know that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. In fact, they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the first part. And that's the part that says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a quote of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, here's the deal. If they know Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says that the king will be born in Bethlehem, we can also presume that they understand Micah chapter 5, verse 2b, which says that the Messiah coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. Now, you're right. What does that mean? It means that he's not going to be like born new. He, he's going to be born, but he preexisted. He is from old. He is from ancient of days. Like, that's an interesting prophecy. This king who is going to be born in Bethlehem is going to be eternal. That's what the text says. And you've got to expect that the religious leaders understood that. The Messiah coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. They know the Messiah born in Bethlehem from ancient of days shall be great to the ends of the earth. That's what verse 4 of Micah chapter 5 says. So this is a king who is going to be born, who is going to be eternal, and his reign will be great even to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth. That's what we know. And then finally, we can presume that they also know from verse 5 that this king who will be born in Bethlehem from ancient of days, who will be great to the ends of the earth, that same Messiah will bring peace to the entire world. Because that's what verse 5 of Micah chapter 5 says. So you've got to assume that the religious leaders know all of this. In short, you've got to assume that the religious leaders know that the promised king is kind of a big deal. He's kind of a big... This isn't just another king. This is the king of kings. They've got to know that. So let's go then to Matthew chapter 2, and you come, and these religious leaders know all of this about Micah, and they're hanging out in Jerusalem, twiddling their thumbs, and here come wise men from a long way away. We're going to get to those guys later. And they're going to say... Where is this guy going to be born? That should raise some curiosity, shouldn't it? Like that, that should tweak them a little bit because here's the one who is going to reign for, like this is not just a king of Israel, which is like the size of New Jersey. This is a king whose reign will be to the ends of the earth, who will bring, bring peace to the entire world. This is a big deal, which begs the question, why didn't the religious leaders get up off their fannies, and walk the five miles to Bethlehem. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are five miles apart. That's not even 10K, it's an 8K. Like that, why? It takes an old fat person like two and a half hours to walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and none of them go. Could you be like the religious leaders? Could you be 
a person so numbed by religious activity that you've kind of lost interest in Jesus because you're just doing the same things over and over again and you've dialed something in and you're comfortable in it? Could that be you? Could that be, or maybe worse, maybe you're so self-certain. And self-certain, by the way, is a synonym that we use on Christmas and Easter to self-righteous. But maybe we're so self-certain that you've forgotten your desperate need of a Messiah, of one who literally is a deliverer and delivering you specifically from the consequence of your sin so that the love of God can unconditionally be given to you forever and unconditionally. Could you be a person who is so self-certain, so self-righteous that you're like, thank you, no. I don't need that. Because that's why the religious leaders sit on their duffs. That's why they have next to no reaction to the Christ child. The only other response that we see in Matthew chapter 2 is the wise men. And the wise men's response stands in stark contrast to that of the religious establishment. They traveled a long way. Some scholars believe they traveled for two years following this star to see the Christ child. Regardless, they traveled a long way to see a child king that they couldn't fully understand. All they had was a star. All they had was a star. And they traveled for two years. They are, we know, from the east, probably Persia, which means, and I'm not saying this is right, the Jews would have seen them as foreigners. Foreigners. They're not only foreigners, though. They are likely diviners, sorcerers, astrologers. So they're not just foreigners. They're weird foreigners. That's what, that's what the Jews, like, you guys are into voodoo. Like, we're, we're not into that around here. That's how it would have worked when the wise men showed up. Begs the question, the story is begging you to ask the question, why would God choose men like these to bear witness to and bring gifts to the Christ King? Why would he do that? Why not take noble men from the religious establishment in Jerusalem? Why, why not prompt them to the 8K to Bethlehem? Why bring those foreigners, those strangers, to give gifts to the king? To press that a little bit further, I'll, I'll tell you this. Matthew of the four Gospels is by far the most Jewish of the four Gospels. There's 95 quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. It's, it's incredibly Jewish. It's written to Jews. And I just want you to know that it begins here with the nations being invited by God to come and see Christ the King. And it ends, by the way, the book of Matthew ends once this little child king grows up to be an adult king, an impeccable king, who dies a sinner's death that you might be saved. He resurrects so that we might worship and follow a living king. Once that has happened, the book of Matthew ends with the redeemed of God being commissioned by the king. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, what's he talking about there? He's talking about sovereignty. He's talking about his kingdom. All authority in heaven and over earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Of who? All the nations. 
Not just the people who look like us, not just the people who have the same religious background as us, all the nations. Teaching, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. It begins with an invitation to the nations to come and see And it ends with the redeemed of God being commissioned to go and tell. And it's a Jewish book. The point is this. Regardless of your ethnic background, your ethical background, or your religious background, this is your king. This is the king that God has given us all to worship. This is the king who is worthy of your worship. It doesn't matter if you were born in a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you were born in a different nation. This this is God's king for mankind. Wise men, in summary of this text, came a long way to worship. And they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's, That's the expression that we see in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they found Jesus in Bethlehem, they didn't rejoice. They they didn't just rejoice. They didn't even just rejoice with joy, which I get as redundancy. Like rejoice is the verbal form of joy. So rejoicing with joy, you get it? They didn't do that. that. That's not all they did. They didn't just rejoice. They didn't rejoice with joy. They didn't even rejoice with great joy. That would be three words. They rejoiced exceedingly with, we're not going to count with, great joy. Matthew uses four words to drive home one concept. Is it a concept that you have understood? A a four-word joy. If there is a Jewish Messiah king from of old, he is eternal who would be great to the ends of the earth, his dominion would be over the ends of the earth, and who would bring peace to the whole world, wouldn't that merit a four-word joy? Do you have a four-word joy in your celebration of the incarnation today? Is this just something you do before dinner? Or is it worth a four-word joy? I started thinking about what in my life, is worthy of four words of joy. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about the, the one-word joys because that wouldn't be profitable. It's just the mundane stuff. There, there's a two-word joy, like kind of a rejoice with joy. It's a redundancy, but it, like, if you want to be redundant, it would be killing a big white-tailed deer. I've, I've bow hunted for 40 years. I've killed some decent deer. I've never killed a giant. And, and I spent eight days really cold in Kansas this fall trying to kill a big deer. I, I get that some of you are judging me right now. It's Christmas Eve. Wait till the 26th, okay? Then, then judge me and write me nasty notes about killing deer. It's what I love to do. Just follow me, okay? It's, it's an illustration. That's a two-word joy. I would Rejoice with joy if I killed a, a giant buck, one that has thus far eluded me. Okay, that, that, would, be, that would be a two-word joy. I, I thought, well, what would be a, a three-word joy? This would be rejoice 
with great joy. Remember, we're not counting the with. Rejoice great joy. What, what would that be? It'd probably be like walking my daughters down the aisle one day if, if the guy who's standing up here is like really godly. It, it will not be a three-word joy if they're not godly. Okay, I'm just telling you that right now. You better be godly if you want me to be smiling. I'll be crying. I'll also be smiling. It's very complicated. But that would be a a three-word joy. Like, rejoice with great joy that day if the guy up here is going to love them like Christ loved the church. Can't wait. That is is a three-word joy. What I'm trying to tell you is the incarnation of a king from ancient of days who is eternal, who brings peace to the whole world, who brings peace to the whole world, that's worthy of a four-word joy. It's the gift that changed everything. It's the gift that is still changing everything. It's the best gift you could possibly receive. Four words. I want to challenge you this Christmas season in the midst of all the busyness and whatever Christmas Eve party you're running off to after this or dinner with friends and I'm all for all of that. I, I want you to think about the incarnation un, until you have four-word joy. I really do. And I, I'm, I'm praying tonight, I just want you to know this, that that God would lay that type of joy deep in your soul for the gift of his son to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to to understand the meaning of Christmas and not to be distracted by all the peripheral things, even if they're good things, Lord, but but that we would have a four-word joy that we we would understand that you are the only sovereign, that there is only one king. And God, I pray that we would happily submit to your authority, happily submit to all the truths that you have given us in your gospel, and that we would live in accordance with those truths. And I pray that we would be delighted to be your sons and daughters. God, help us not to be so distracted that we would miss that which is most significant in our infatuation with things that are fleeting. Thank you, God, for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, West. Uh, in a minute, we're going to stand, and we're going to light candles, and we're going to sing Silent Night. But before we do, I, I just want you to know, don't, don't miss uh, the symbolism of what we're about to do. Uh, we're about to take a few lights and turn them into lots of lights, uh, and that's what God did.